0: our series of titled Relentless Love. And um, again, we have to maybe not become weary with the fact that we're circling around the same theme. You know, we see this uh, in particular in John's epistles, isn't it, where it's this theme of love, but You think it's pretty much just saying the same old thing and it's like, you know, you can shut off like when your parents are pretty much telling the same thing, thinking, oh, it's just the same old, same old thing going on. But reality, what you're doing is you're getting a perspective that changes and twists around that really is actually trying to give you the most thorough explanation for why We should take this subject seriously, and especially, like you said, when you look at John's epistles about the whole idea of love, and not just love towards God, but love towards the brethren, and how key that is to being a part of God's church, to the point where, where John very boldly says, if you are not loving the church, you're not really a part of the church, and we're supposed to take that seriously. Now, Hosea is doing something very similar about the love of God and the love that we owe Christ, the love that we owe the triune God. And it seems like he's circling around this theme of how how much God loves you, but at the same time, how much God is going to judge Israel for not loving him the way they ought to. So as we kind of land this, this week and next week, Stay attuned, because there is something for us to be gained, even as we might see similar themes crop up again. So I want to take a slightly different mode today. I don't want to read the text. I want to kind of walk through it with you today, um, because I think that will be helpful, just as a, a means of maybe teaching it in a way that hopefully will um, hopefully drive the argument of or the the arrangement of Hosea's um, 13th chapter in a way that hopefully we can understand it better. So let me pray um, as we uh, begin. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful, Father, because it is that which you've given us for life. Lord, when we think of the, the food we eat there, Lord, even maybe the breakfast we've had this morning, even the, the lunch and the dinners we may be looking forward to, Lord, and we look at that as a great sense of joy, not just as a place, there, God, where we are refueling our body, but Lord God, may we have that sense. May we enjoy the hearing of your word, there, God, as much as we know that, Father, it is there to nourish us to do something. And maybe that's what we need more than the fact that we may enjoy your word and, and very much be inspired by it. But Lord, to allow it to fuel our actions is another matter. I pray that, Lord God, you will help us to move forward if we are indeed stuck. If these themes, Lord God, of, of being stagnated or even pulling back in our love for you is really an issue for us, help us to respond. Help us to respond, not because, again, merely by the charisma of myself or anything else, but Lord, other than the fact that we do look back and see your great acts of love towards us. And we do identify that we are indeed blessed because of what you have done in our lives. May that be our inspiration, dear Lord God, to move forward in you. So teach us, we pray, Lord. Help me, I pray, to do your word justice. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let me start off, I mean, um, I've entitled today because it's a question I want to explore. Is all fear in love and war? Question mark. Is all fear in love and war? Let me start with a quote from, um, a famous quote from Emily Dickinson. The heart wants what it wants or else it does not care. What does this mean? Well, the heart wants what it wants and it is a proverb, a phrase typically used to explain or justify one's behaviour, especially if it is confusing or disturbing to others. In other words when I'm acting out what I want, don't judge me on that. It's my heart. It's my normative behavior. Who are you to judge me? I'm acting out of my heart. There's a lot of that today. And though we might see this out in the world in, in, in ways that we don't really appreciate, how are we actually acting out this in our own way before God? And maybe not with things that are, quote, you know, overtly sinful. It leads me to this question Is it the fault of Yahwehism, that which is what the ancient Jews followed, or Christianity that it cannot keep you engaged? In other words, our distractions, those things that we find more engaging than our Christian commitments, is that down to God? We have a lot of this going around today where it seems that the gospel is not enough, where people want the church to be about something other than the gospel. As though the gospel gets boring and stale to the point where we want our mission to be something else. And so I guess many people are quote-unquote deconstructing on the basis of Christianity no longer seems to meet my needs. the framing of Hosea's message in the picture of marriage. So this is all being um, displayed, and God's love is all being displayed in Hosea's marriage to Goma. And it can be difficult to understand if we don't step outside of our own cultural norms and look at what it is to be married. We have our own normal standards, and obviously even in ancient Israel, there were norms that would have been inconsistent with how Hosea is framing how marriage ought to be. Even Jesus in his time was, had to reframe what marriage was in God's eyes in comparison to what it became in Palestine in the first century. Well, if you get bored and the, 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 the woman displeases you, you move on, right? That's their attitude to marriage, and so we see that we cannot come with our own understanding of what marriage is in order to truly embrace the message of Hosea. So what does, so, high, so Hosea is illustrating, I believe, a high view of marriage and loyalty to God that would be hard to grasp even for the most pious believer living now or then. We witness this in his challenge to go and redeem Goma after she has left him for another, another man or another lover. To go and redeem her out of, literally, the brothel. No Israelite man could have been seen to disgrace himself like that. So it wasn't even normal in Hosea's days to look at that and say, that, was, that woman was worth it. we need to be honest about how low commitment ranks within the scheme of our society. No commitment is binding as long as the heart is not in it. And this is literally something that the society holds as true. We place a premium on meeting our felt, sacred needs over our fickle commitments. And that really ought to be the other way around. Our fickle needs or wants over our sacred commitments. But nowadays, we tend to think that, well, I kind of made that decision in haste, and so I can't really be bound, and I feel differently now, and so therefore, don't really hold me to something that my heart really won't keep me to.. If I no longer feel that I am in love, am I really obligated to stay with someone that makes me unhappy? Our challenge today is to see if our see to our feelings be enslaved to our commitments. As opposed to our commitments being enslaved to our feelings. I believe the consequences of not meeting this challenge and following it through to its right conclusion is the judgment of God. Let me start verse 1. So, reading from the ESV, verse 1. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. I want to kind of set the the scene here by maybe going into probably more detail than maybe you feel like you want. But I think it's helpful. What is the history of Ephraim? Why is that so important? Why is Israel being umbrellaed under this this, this term of Ephraim? Well, I trace this back. Why using Ephraim? All the way back, this theme of the divided kingdoms goes all the way back to Genesis 38 and 39. In Genesis 38, we see Judah leave his father's house and settle in Chezeb. This chapter leads us in a story of how Judah now becomes embroiled in an incestuous relationship with his daughter in law Tabar. And it leads to two children being born. In chapter 39, the very next chapter, it down brings us back to Joseph in Egypt. And at the same time, it would appear that Judah was in this incestuous relationship with his daughter-in-law. Joseph was in Potiphar's house, not succumbing to the temptation of his wife. And so there's a contrast that while Judah being in the land was being unfaithful to God, Joseph was outside of the land in Egypt being faithful to God. So there's that picture of Ephraim being the child of Joseph being prominent. So we see this obviously when Israel's Jacob, as it were, comes and blesses the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. And he blesses them, but Ephraim gets the chief blessing. The younger son gets the chief blessing. And through those two sons, Jake, Joseph is given a double portion. But Ephraim is going to be the more prominent of the two. What's interesting when we look at Genesis 38 and 39 in contrast, is that Joseph's good beginning leads to unfaithfulness way earlier than Judah in terms of turning to idolatry. Whereas by contrast, Judah's bad beginning leads to a longer faithfulness to God. But also what we cannot escape is the fact that even through these children that Tamar beers for Judah, the Messiah comes. So often it's not the poor start that we need to look at. Jesus gives that um, fascinating parable, isn't it, about the son who would two sons, one was asked to go to the field, both were asked to go to the field. One said yes, but never showed up. The other one said no, but ended up showing up. Which one done the will of the Father? Again, sometimes if you've had a bad start, if you've had a history of unfaithfulness, you need not be disappointed. God can do much with that. More so, even in Genesis 37, the chapter before, Joseph is promised that he will become prominent among his brothers. And this becomes true enough even in his lifetime. He becomes the prime minister of Egypt. But what we find is that this also extends to his descendants in Israel overall. As I said, in Genesis 48, Jacob blesses the two sons of Joseph As part of that double portion blessing, Ephraim is truly blessed. Ephraim is truly prominent. He had everything going for him. I want to lend you an illustration, maybe, to kind of give this, and it's a movie one, but I think it's helpful. Michael Colleone in The Godfather. It's an interesting movie about the whole idea of how a a son who is, quote-unquote, not caught up in the criminal empire of his family. What we would call the mafia, but within the context of the movie, the Costa Nostra. At the beginning of the movie, he is a World War II hero returning home. He has a wife who is not connected to any of the families, any of the mafia family, all the rest of it. She is complete outsider, but he loves her. And to some extent, it's the prospect of a good life outside of the criminal family. But what the movie then goes on to show is how Michael is drawn away from that life that he could have had to the final scene where he no longer is the Michael you meet at the beginning of the movie. In almost, I can say, cinematic perfection, it is symbolized that he is there with the family his new family, and his wife Kay is on the outside of this room and people are coming to kiss the hand of the new godfather. And the door closes on Kay as the new Michael is born. That was the death of the former Michael, the timid Michael that we meet at the beginning of the movie, who had seen and was no stranger to violence. He has just come back from World War II. He knows what it means to be violent. But he comes, and he wants to get away from it. The birth of this new Michael... He is powerful, he is feared, but he is in a fragile world that is ready to collapse in a moment. And everything that plays out within the whole Godfather trilogy is how fragile that world is that he has now become a part of. And every time he tries to escape, they drag him back in. Ephraim is like Michael in some respects. The opportunity to live outside of the pagan world, to, to live a good life, to live well before he's God. But out of some misplaced loyalty, because everything that you see within that context is that Michael is doing all of this for his family. But the problem is, which family? Family. Ephraim believed it matured. It had become powerful. But as the text says, he actually died when he turned to Baal. When he thought he was consolidating his power, when we saw Jeroboam, as we've gone through many times, going to idol worship as a form of worship as opposed to unifying with Judah... And worshipping Yahweh together, they actually died as a nation. Even though they continued on. Even though they were powerful. Even sometimes more powerful than Judah. They died. And the world that they are now in, where they've now been themselves in, the, the calf worship has now put them in a fragile world and the security that god can give them they no longer can receive there are times when we assume we are progressing as a person or as a nation but we are actually dying All our potential dies as we move from our true source of life to a false one. Israel, like Michael, moved from a good life, secured, as it might be, in the grace of God, to an insecure one rooted in false religion. Let's turn to verse 2 and 3. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swells from the freshened floor or like smoke. From a window. When we are trapped in an error, we have the choice of either repenting and turning away from it or doubling down and intensifying the problem. So having chosen calf worship via Jeroboam, every king afterwards just doubled down on it. They chose to continue an error, and it had repercussions for the nation. As Yahweh or the Lord was sidelined, so the culture fell into decline, in line with the new paganism they had chosen to depend on. But the signs of decay were not yet fully visible, but lurking beneath the surface. The upside-down world is highlighted by the fact that they sacrifice their children and kiss calves. When they should be sacrificing calves and kissing babies. No culture can survive when it is living by such topsy-turvy values. You See how much that one phrase captures? They sacrifice humans and kiss calves. It typifies an upside-down world, and I believe that if we look at especially Western culture right now, we see similar values being displayed. Verse 4 to 6. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And beside me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they become full. They were filled and their hearts was lifted up. Therefore they forgot me. is it fair that love can be so unfair to those who sacrifice so much to win our affections and loyalty the same can go can also be said of where where we are I want to present another illustration, again, from a movie. But again, I think it's helpful. And one I've used before. It's a movie that I watched in my teenage years, but I found incredibly shocking. My teenage years, I, I liked lots of, you know horror movies, all the rest of it, but nothing shocked me like this, and it was a simple American high school movie called The Last American Virgin, and it's a picture of a typical high school with the various hierarchies of the jocks and the cheerleaders and and such, such as they made in the 80s. And there was a young man who was part of, I guess you could say, the nerds or the outsiders, not the nerds, the outsiders. And the one thing he loved was music. He had his vinyl connection and it was his way of connecting to a world in which he felt like a night sourder because, again, no one took notice of him. But beside the music, he loved this young woman young lady, young, who was part of the cheerleaders. Loved her immensely, but loved her from a distance. Couldn't get inside that world because cheerleaders were for jocks. And no one else. And there's no breaking that, quote-unquote, caste system. But one... Afternoon, he comes into the canteen and sees her sitting alone. And realizes that she now is an outsider just like him. And so he goes and embraces her and finds out that she's pregnant. She's pregnant by one of the jocks, the even you can say even the head of the jocks. And she's sad, and they despise her now. She is despised because she's pregnant, even pregnant with his own child. And so none of her cheerleader friends speak to her, and so this outsider becomes her only friend. He wants to make her happy. And the only way that she can be happy is if she can get rid of this baby. It's not a perfect illustration, but I think it helps. She doesn't want her parents to know, and she has no money to be able to get this procedure done. So this young man takes his record collection, his pride, his joy, the only thing outside this woman that makes him happy, and he sells it all, takes her to the clinic, gets the procedure done, and then brings her home. All this time being, as it were, tactful. Not advancing his love on her, but just just being kind, being gentle. And he thinks he's moving on in the relationship where he feels that now, maybe she will notice him more. And the very next day, when he comes into the canteen, she is back with the cheerleaders and the jocks. And she ignores him. In fact, acts just like they used to, she acts, now that she has what she wants. Now the baby's gone, there's no issue, the guy's all happy. The reason why that shocked me, I mean, I had no idea About what love was about. I was a young teenager when I watched that movie, but I couldn't believe love could be so cruel. Couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that you could give everything that you had, even the best of what you have, and still not end up getting what you might say you deserve. I was truly horrified. But it illustrates to some extent the picture of God delivering Israel from Egypt, being that person that says, I have given everything for you. Eventually, even his son. That which I love the most. and still end up being on the outside of our lives. It's that picture that really helps me to understand how I ought to be grounded in my relationship with God. And it leads me to say exactly what I've entitled it. Is actually all fear in love and war? 7 and 8. So I am like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts. And there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. Unlike this young man in this movie who just ends up going back into his lonesome self, the Lord doesn't do that. He doesn't retreat into the background like a a snubbed lover. His persona now changes. I've given you the carrot. Now it's time for the stick. Now it's time for me to become a predator in your life. Now it's time for me to hunt you down and become an adversary to you. You want to make me into an enemy? Fine. All's fair in love and war, right? I will hunt you down. You see, the thing is that we think that the Lord will retreat into the background, having given us all, and just basically take it on the nose and say, well, it's fine, okay? Like we would in this life. And that's why I say the values in this life don't really transpose into what the values of Hosea is trying to project. Because again, if a snub lover in our world becomes a predator, we put them in prison. But in this world, in this context, when God has truly given us all where he can say, you are mine, he has every right to become a predator. He will have what he will have. 9 to 11. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers? Those of whom you said, give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. Without this, this, the book of um, Hosea, the, 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 he repeatedly brings up this choice that Israel made way back in First Samuel 8 to have a king as opposed to, again, relying on God and the judge system. The judge system, as we will see, was how God would raise up a leader at, at key points in Israel's history in order to deliver them. And at the, when you get to kind of the end of the book of Judges, you kind of realise that the people get weary with this procedure. And maybe more so because as you see the, some of the later judges, obviously they get weaker and weaker to the point where you have someone like Samson who doesn't even want to rescue Israel. Everything he does that happens for Israel's benefit happens regardless of why he's doing it. In other words, he's saving his own neck and fighting for his own dignity, but Israel benefit from it. And they wanted to move away from this system because they believed it was a bit weak, maybe. And they wanted the consistency of a king. A lot has been said about that. I won't want to labor that again in this series. But again, Hosea brings this up consistently for a reason. It was a sign of their unfaithfulness towards God. And it wasn't so much the fact that they asked for a king. It was how they asked. We want a king like the other nations. Like, I want to be like everybody else. I want to fit in. I want the system that seems to be working for everybody else. Again, we, we, you can look back to Deuteronomy 17. There was adequate position for a king to be raised up. We know the Messiah had to come in some, as some form of king because that's what Messiah means, the anointed king, the anointed one. But it was the fact that when, how they had asked was the fact that they believed that the system was no longer working for them. We also need to be careful that we do not prefer secular forms of organizing our local fellowship instead of biblical ones. The community of faith is to remain as such and ought not to seek the security below that of the triune God. And so anything that takes us below the security of God. Oh, well, why are we doing this? This is not, again, to deny the fact that we can use the wisdom of the world and how they organize this. It's not about that at all. It's about how we try to use that as a means of, well, we won't need to trust in God if we do this. That's the issue. If we put this in place, then, in a sense, we don't have to pray about that anymore. And that's the problem. We're seeking security below the triune God. And the reality is there is no security below that. It's God's way. God blesses it or he doesn't bless it. So everything we put out in place to organize ourselves doesn't come in place of God. God does indeed give Israel a king, but a king eventually after his own heart. And that's what we want. The things that we put in place, we'll trust that God will actually add the increase as we put it in place. So as we organize ourselves, and even as we might say now, reorganize ourselves as a church community, we do so saying, Lord, we put you at the head of all of this. Establish it according to your wisdom. Psalm 20 is incredibly helpful here, just as a reflection of this. And I will read that to you because I think it's helpful. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the the name of God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire. And fulfill all your plans. May he shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Oh Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Isn't that that perfect balance of like the king is in place, but everything is still placed upon God. God, help the king to do the things that he needs to do. Let us present our petitions and and look for your amen on that. Let us put everything before you and you alone. Verses 12 and 13. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him. But he is an unwise son. For at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. So at this point, Israel is so, again, as the chapter portrays, is so closely identified with its sin that it cannot let go of it. It's like an addict. They're trapped in the cycle of cravings that, of craving that which destroys them. And herein lies the problem of addiction, whatever it might be. And as I said, I've avoided saying drugs or alcohol or the rest of it. Whatever we're addicted to. And you, you, you can be in that position where you know it's destroying you. You know it's hurting you, but you don't know how to stop. Israel at this point are so embroiled in idolatry and the calves are so set up. It's like... There may very well have been a king or thought, I want to deal with this, but when you see how ingrained it is in the society that, boy, if I remove this, I'm going to die. The people will stoned me, how can I change? And so what that you see on the, na- on the level of a nation, like how can we get rid of something that has become so integral to the nation? The same way we might look at something that has become so integral to who we are. And even when we know it's destroying us, we don't know how to stop. As a result of this inability to repent, the new Israel cannot be born. So that's what that picture is, is that God wants a new Israel to be reborn, a new you to be reborn. But because we can't let go, you're just at the womb and you can't come out. You're not being born. The tragedy is that a child that will not be born will eventually die. There's no clinging on to the womb. There's no, uh, you know... It's like an aborted vision, an aborted plan. Eventually, it will die. Moving on to verse 14. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol, I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hid from my eyes. As a result of Israel being unwilling to repent in this life, the only hope is that God can resurrect them from the grave. I need to make a note on this particular verse, verse 14, because it can be read as, Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Or I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol? The Hebrew can, can go either way. I have chosen to give it that bend of God does want to do this. Because I believe that there is that consistent picture building up through Scripture. Um, in particular, obviously, um, Ezekiel 37. The valley of the dry bones. Can these bones live, Ezekiel. And Ezekiel says, thou knowest. No. And the Lord breathes upon them and, in, and as it were, that picture of Israel coming back to life. And so we know that theme of resurrection runs all the way through. And we know that Paul quotes this for a purpose, that God can indeed deliver from the grave. In a sense, this is that prediction of the latter rain being better than the former rain because in a sense, God's ability to redeem When you look at Exodus as being the pinnacle of redemption within the context of the Old Testament, the very pinnacle, you take the power of the time, you put a people in it, um, you you, you lock in a king who has obviously no interest in letting those people go because obviously they're the slaves that keep the society going. And then you've got a people who want to go and worship. And so there's a deadlock. And that redemption is amazing because God buckles Pharaoh under the weight of his power. And you think, wow, what a story of redemption. Great. But the great theme of the Bible is that, as you see, building from that, is that the final redemption that God is going to do is actually from the grave. Death now becomes... So Pharaoh gets supplanted and the devil... And death now become the new enemies and says, I'm not going to deliver you from no pharaoh anymore. I'm going to deliver you from the power of sin and from the grave. That's the beauty of how the story of redemption builds into the New Testament, which Paul preaches. The Lord who will redeem you. Not from Assyria. Not from Babylon. Babylon but the Lord who delivers us from sin and death. That's the grand story of the Bible and how it builds. And so, as he mentions his deliverance of them from Egypt, he now focuses on his deliverance from the grave. The nation that has died, God will redeem Verse 15 and 16 now. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come. Rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces, and their parents, pregnant women, ripped open. This is the word of the Lord. Israel may feel like it is flourishing now, at that particular point in history. But it's not to be deceived. The wind is blowing. That wind is representative of a wind of obviously devastation, and again, we saw it this week, isn't it? That you know, we've seen on the charts that you know this this was it, northerly wind that was blowing, but all of a sudden this southern wind was going to blow and bring us this heat wave. And the stronger that wave goes, is that is is is, is that's sort going of to bring in that new weather system. The weather system is used very much the same here whether that weather system is favourable or unfavourable to us. It's quite, it's quite funny, actually. I, I was thinking about how this week, how we seek for that type of heat when <laughs> we jump on a plane, but we don't like it when it shows up <laughs> in our home, when we're at home, when we're at work, I guess. It's, it's probably the irony there. I don't want to work in that heat, but I want to chill in that heat. <laughs> but... That's the image of a weather system. The weather system is going to change. And right now what's blowing is, that, is the grace of God's favor is blowing on them because obviously it's given them time to change. But that system is going to end and it's going to bring in judgment. It's going to bring in the Assyrians. It's going to bring in the very thing it says here. Babies dashed and killed and preciousness, even as we hear the babies there, isn't it? That's the terrible the terrible thing. Again, the, the loss of life when this new judgment comes. The wind of change. Praise God this is not the final word. We've got next week to come. Have you lost the joy you had in the Lord but have refused to take responsibility for the loss? In other words, that, that continuation of the, re, the relationship where you may have looked at a point in your life and you said, Lord, I was in, some, I was in a dark place and you really have redeemed me. You really have changed my life. And, and that joy you had in that day-to-day fellowship that don't really exist anymore. Do you believe that, again, as that saying says, well, the heart wants what it wants? There are new things engaging me. There's new things that are interesting me now. And, you know, Lord, I, you know, at the moment, you, you, you caught my attention, but now, not really so much. Who bears the responsibility for that? I think as we read this text, the culture may look around us and say, well, that's God. That's the fact that Christianity hasn't got that ability to keep us, quote unquote, entertained. But I will tell you today that Hosea says, no, that responsibility actually lies with you. if he has redeemed you, if you really look at the fact that the things he has brought into your life, maybe your families, maybe your career, maybe your health, whatever it might be that you can look and say, actually, I've seen great things. And even, let us say, the very power from from slavery to sin. Lord, you have done that. We owe him our affection, our allegiance. Let me um, just read Ecclesiastes 9, 11. Again, I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Is it really time and chance? Or is it the grace of God? Remember, the the teacher here is looking from an undersung perspective. But so often we can be deluded into thinking that actually, as I come and think about it, my success is really mine. I've got myself here. So if you struggle to see that you owe God, you need to repent. If you become f- confused about where your successes come from, you need to turn back to God. That which was purchased by the love of the Father, by sending the Son to die, and then giving us the comfort of His Spirit, We owe him for that. We are not to fall into the trap of the culture and say, well, realistically, my affections have led me elsewhere. We bear that responsibility to love him in measure, at least in gratitude for the gift he has given us, for what a great deliverance he has given us. Amen. Father, we're thankful. And if we're not thankful, Lord God, help us to be thankful for the great deliverance you've given us through your Son. It was a plan hatched within the grand beauty and wisdom of your triune being there, Lord God. That, Father, that the love that you share amongst the Son and the Spirit there, Lord Father, you wanted to share with us and bring us to you, dear Lord God. And when we thought that you had created your greatest masterpiece, dear Lord Father, in Egypt. And, and, and brought Israel out, dear Lord God. And we thought, wow, what a great picture of redemption that is, dear Lord Father. Even then, their Father, you were smirking, dear Lord God. And saying, "No, oh, my children, the best is yet to come. I will send you my son. I will send you a better than Moses. And he will redeem you from sin and death. Lord, we have much to be thankful for, much to be grateful for. Help us, Lord, to show that affection, of God, in, in, a, in a place, Lord God, where we feel like, well, I don't want to force it. I don't want to be fake. I don't want to pretend that I'm grateful for something that I don't really feel. But yet, Lord, again, it's the fact that our commitment should lead us, should lead our, our affections our commitment to you will dictate dear Lord Father what we, whether what we are feeling is right. And if we feel begrudging, if we feel their Lord God that we don't owe you a, a song of praise every day, a word of prayer to reflect on your word, Lord, teach us otherwise so that, Lord God, the affections will grow, that we won't feel filled their Lord God until that commitment is met. And, Lord God, again, it's not, again, in a legalistic sense. It's just through gratitude. And that, Lord, every day when we pray and give thanks for our food, as we um, commit our days and our, our plans to you, Lord, let us do it in gratitude. And say, let your will be done. In Jesus' name. Amen.